While we were wrapping up 2016, and as we go into 2017, we're seeing more and more people talk about how machine learning will impact the future of education. Now we're not just talking about how we teach young minds, but also how we educate new customers about our products, and even for marketers, on how to implement new strategies to create a better, more personalized experience for their clients. Learn about how you can use machine learning technology to improve the way content is delivered and retained by your audience on this episode of the Content Marketing for the Future podcast. Hello and welcome to the Content Marketing for the Future podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Chu. Thanks so much for joining us on the very first episode of 2017. If you're new to our podcast, we publish a new episode every other week where we talk to marketing professionals who can teach you about what's coming up in content marketing. In today's session, we will be talking about machine learning and the future of education. Machine learning helps us to react faster to customers' needs and teaches us marketers on how to better deliver educational content to each and every individual, creating a richer experience, removing that feeling of learning as a chore. Today's guest often writes for Forbes on how innovations affect our world of work. As a hunter of the latest research, A.D. Gaskell is here to share his insights on how artificial intelligence can impact education. Hi, Amanda. So just to start things off, how has real-time feedback allowed publishers to tailor content specifically to the needs of their audience? Um, I mean, this is something that you've been sort of quite familiar with, I guess, in the content marketing field for probably over a decade now. And you get analytics on pretty much everything that you publish. So you know how long people have been reading. You're getting sort of heat map data on um, how much of the page people have read um, when they're turning off of it and so on. Likewise, with videos, you, you get data on how long people are tuning in before they click off to watch another sort of cat video or what have you. And that traditionally hasn't been the case in education. Um, you, you write a book and it's a paper product and you've no idea really whether people read it, what chapters they're, they're interested in, what chapters they're struggling with, what chapters they have to read multiple times. You just don't know. And with ebooks, I, I think that's beginning to change and publishers are getting so much more insight as to actually what people are doing with the products that they, they buy. And that's, I think, really exciting um, and, and gives publishers so much more power to provide the kind of content that individuals are looking for because they have feedback on, on what it is they're, they're actually reading and what, what it is they're enjoying. So what sort of feedback do you see coming through? I think it's quite an early stage at the moment, um, certainly with regards to, to e-book publishing, um, because I think at the moment it's primarily a case whereby you're taking the book in the same format that it's published um, in physical form and just transplanting it to, a, to an e-book, um, which does kind of limit you to things like the the page views and and so on um but if you start creating content that's a lot more interactive um and so you're giving people perhaps quizzes on the end of each chapter that you can then gain feedback um on how well people are digesting a particular um, piece of information and that's giving you a, a whole nother level of um analytics again 
um, to base your sort of content creation on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think that's anywhere near sort of mainstream. <laughs> well, I yet. think it should be. That's actually a very good idea because I see a lot of ebooks being published out there, and many marketers that I've talked to, they are all like, most of the ebooks you download are not really good. Most of them are just. Uh, aggregated copies of what's already on someone's blog and it's not offering any value and at the end of the day you're going to forget it so if you do add interactivity to your ebooks and i guess put a test or a quiz a fun quiz at the end of it you'll get the feedback you want yeah yeah exactly and i i I don't know about you but i i tend to if there's a chapter that i'm sort of really engaged with i I can often read it multiple times Mm -hmm. um and and so you you get that level of insight that you don't normally get from a, a physical book. And if you do have that kind of quiz type uh, interactivity in there as well, then you are gaining insight into whether people are getting better at understanding the topic you're, you're talking about. And I think that can be quite powerful. Yeah, it's really a great idea. I will actually bring it up with our marketing team because we're looking to invest more time into creating quality ebooks. And we want there to be another level of being able to retain information besides just reading it and jotting notes. So a great checkoff list or, again, quiz. Perfect idea. I think with a web page, it can be quite a community-based thing as well. And I, I don't really sense that that's something that ebook publishers have taken advantage of either um, because we are quite social animals. And, again, I'm, I'm sure you're only too familiar in in sort of content marketing about the social proof and how we tend to buy um, books on Amazon or wherever based upon the recommendations of others and so on. Um, And yet if you read a book, you've no idea whether other people found that particular chapter or that particular concept really useful. Mm -hmm. You don't know they've been struggling with it and therefore it's something that you need to focus extra hard on. Um, none none of that information is available and yet you sense the technology is there to make that kind of aggregated insight available to other readers Um, but it's not yeah for the most part you know people will read a printed book but not everyone will write a blog post about it or review it online they're not going to go back after buying it i mean i myself rarely have left a review about a book i've read but i loved it there's a disconnect there whereas if it's um online or if it's a digital copy you're already online it's very easy to go back and write a review about it yeah that's it i mean a blog post is quite a a communal experience i think and you often get more insights from engaging with the comments at the end of the blog than you do from the actual blog itself and obviously with an ebook there's a potential to engage with other readers, but that potential isn't really being utilized at the moment, I don't think. So for many of us, we were taught in an environment that meant learning from sheets of printed paper and books and not digitally published content. So in an industry that boasts tradition, how has the digital age affected the education industry? And what does this mean for readers, teachers, authors, and publishers? Yeah, I mean, as you say, the education industry is a little bit conservative to put it mildly. Um, <laughs> yes, mildly. So I think a lot of the things that we're, we're sort of talking about um, today are at a very, very early stage of their sort of life cycle. And it may be an awfully long time before they ever reach the mainstream just because the pace of change is, is quite slow. But I think there is an awful lot of potential. So for readers, for instance, there is an increasing amount of flexibility about how we can 
consume content now and I think that's sort of fantastic I'm a great sort of lover of paper books myself and I, I've got a sort of big library of various things and I I personally prefer that as a means of digesting content than an ebook. So I've never sort of gone down the Kindle route or, or anything like that. But I love blogs and I love reading shorter form bits of content on the web and, and so on. And, and obviously that's uh, something that I can do in, in perpetuity because there aren't so many blogs created in that way. Other people like podcasts that they can listen to on their way to work. Other people prefer videos and tuning into a MOOC or, or watching a TED talk or, or something like that is a, a good way for them to educate themselves on a particular topic. And so I think it's it's great that we do have these options now we perhaps didn't have previously. From a teaching perspective, again, the potential is quite significant. Because if, if you think about a, a traditional classroom, the opportunity for the teacher to actually see in real time which students are actually finding the content ridiculously easy, which students are finding it very hard, um, which students are bored. It, it's quite difficult unless you're incredibly intuitive and can pick up these little signals from 20 or 30 students at any one time. Whereas if that learning is in a digital environment and you're doing regular quizzes or, or you're getting analytics from um, the amount of the content that's being read by a student, then you are getting that level of insight um, and it's much harder for students then to sort of fall through the gaps almost. And those quiet students that you don't necessarily notice can often get left out in favour of the more rambunctious students that are more sort of in your face, I guess. And so I think that's quite, quite powerful. And from an author's perspective, I think we do increasingly see journalists and, and book authors blogging which is, again, fantastic. And, and we're increasingly seeing bloggers becoming authors. And it's almost as though the, the boundaries between these are, are sort of blurring quite a lot. And I think as books become more dynamic pieces of content that are updated more frequently, um, then those boundaries will become blurred even more. And I think that's certainly an interesting concept for, for publishers. And we've seen the media industry and the news media in particular struggle enormously with with the internet and how they can monetize something that people increasingly want for free. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the publishing industry is having similar issues, certainly in the, in the academic publishing industry where a lot of research now is, is open access. Um, and, and there's quite a lot of disruption of the traditional journal publishers that want to obviously monetize their content versus the wider academic and science community that want to open access to obviously further the reach of their work and, and hopefully do more good. So I think maybe the, the whole model of selling a book as a fixed piece of content, and then if it requires any kind of update, then you release a second edition and a third edition and so on, each time charging the customer $10, $15 extra for, for each new edition. I think that's perhaps um, a little bit tired now and, and in, in need of an update. Um, where you're sort of buying access to a particular author on a sort of subscription model, perhaps. So with the challenges that you've listed for each category, um, are there any other ways of you thinking of getting around them as, as uh, compared in addition to increasing the cost per update? I mean, I, I don't even necessarily need to see it as a cost for update. Because um, if you think of, what digital publishing allows now in terms of the marginal costs for each new edition there, it's incredibly low. Um, and you've seen uh, platforms such as the MOOCs 
whereby teaching to 100,000 pupils is no less expensive than teaching to 10 pupils. And that sort of changes the game a bit. Um, so I can see perhaps publishers adapting to this with a slightly different business model that that is almost uh, akin to the radio stations, the Spotify type things where you can subscribe to a particular expert and then you get regular updates um, based upon whatever they publish, whether it is a, a TED talk, a, a video, a podcast, um, a blog post, a, a longer form book type bit of content. And your interest is in the particular author rather than the, the actual piece of content that you're getting from them. So definitely a lot more pros to having um, the digital, the publications in the digital age rather than just in print. Although many people, including myself, love reading things from paper. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm very much with you on that one. So we've been seeing more and more industries adopting systems that deal with personalization. Uh, what are the advantages of adaptive learning, which can also be looked at as personalization in education? I think certainly from a teaching perspective, from a student, it, I think the advantages are quite sort of clear in that you, you're not being uh, fed content or fed teaching that tends to go according to the speed of the slowest student in the class. You, you're getting content that is more tailored towards you and your particular needs and your particular challenges with a, with a topic. And I, I think that's good. I think that's certainly beneficial for, for learners because we all do learn at different speeds. We we struggle with uh, different concepts to one another and, and so on. And it, it's only going to be better if we can actually get personalized learning according to those needs. But on the flip side, that does create certain challenges for teachers because rather than teaching one class to 20, 30 pupils, it's almost like you're having to shift that to teaching 20 or 30 different classes, mm -hmm. um, which is obviously quite a significant challenge. And so I, I do wonder if technology can play a, a big role in helping support the teacher in doing that. So it's in the news just today about a, a Georgia Tech academic mm -hmm. who had developed a artificial intelligence system to do a lot of the marking for his classes. And so maybe there's a possibility there for AI or, or technology to do more of the administrative stuff that teachers have to juggle with. And that then gives them a bit more time and resources to, to deal with the teaching side of it. What sort of marking were they doing? Because we've had those standardized like multiple choice questions you feed it into a machine and then it tells you the mark at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, this is, um, I think it's slightly more advanced than uh, just doing sort of multiple choice stuff. It's more freeform text and, and so on. Um, and I think it sort of took took the form of a chatbot type application where students could actually interact with it. And so, yeah, it's quite interesting. Obviously, it's just one academic at the moment deploying this in, in their particular um, environment. I don't think they, they were commercializing product or, or anything like that. But I think it is quite a nice example of what is possible. And I, I know, for instance, in um, customer service and, and things like that, I think it's something like 80% of customer service requests are questions that have already been answered quite well previously. But giving the customer service staff access to that database, if, if they were frantically sort of querying the database to find that best best practice answer, it would take a long time. So there are AI systems now that sort of do that for them. And I, I, want, I wonder if a similar thing could help in, in class. I mean, it's the old, old maxim that you should always ask a question because other people are bound to be having the same issue themselves. And I think that's probably very true, certainly from my own experience. So whether AI can help develop a slightly more richer and intuitive um, FAQ 
type process uh, that that would seem to be uh, quite valuable, I would imagine. Right. So you know, we have personalization, and then from what you're describing, they'll be they'll be able to use that information to create a standardized FAQ. But so then, what are the downsides to a more personalized education apart from there not being enough teachers per student? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess that's quite a big big downside, and it. I mean, we've seen various um, proposals to to change the manner of teaching and, and the sort of flipped classroom whereby you you watch the lecture um, in your own time and then the, the class-based time is more interactive. And I think that kind of approach is, is quite nice because it, it does allow the teacher then to go from pupil to pupil and sort of hopefully provide a more tailored experience um so maybe that kind of innovation will be um seen a bit more widely than it is at the moment and again that's quite a a niche at the moment i think um it's certainly not mainstream yet um (laughs) i wish it was (laughs) yeah yeah i myself am going back to uh, school next year just for some you know more, more learning just to improve myself for my career and I was just looking at the curriculum and I was like, I wish this was more specialized towards SAS models or technology rather than a, a more broader scope of the industry. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that knowledge is available amongst the, the, uh, the faculty, um, but they just don't necessarily know that that's what you want to specialize in. <laughs> Maybe I'll just have to network myself and just ask yeah, the professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so since digital means data, how can digitizing learning experiences aid teachers? I always sort of feel like I should preface um, this kind of topic, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with it from a, a content perspective. In that whilst we get a lot of data, um, it doesn't necessarily provide us with the insights that we're looking for. So we, we might know that a, a particular piece of content has a high bounce rate or a, a low time on site or things like that, but that doesn't necessarily tell us why people are bouncing or whether they got exactly what they needed from that one visit and then left quite happy mm-hmm. or whether they were so annoyed with what we tried to produce for them that they went off and, and never returned to the site again. We don't really get that level of insight from a lot of the data that we're providing from a content perspective. And I think there's perhaps a risk of that as well from a, a teaching and education perspective um, that we're getting certain bits of data, but does it provide us with enough context to really understand what that data means and how it affects the student and their learning and and equally does the teacher have enough data intelligence themselves to to be able to interpret the the information and understand it and i know from an organizational perspective um departments like hr are, are suffering from that because they just traditionally don't recruit for people with data science skills um, and so they're sort of falling a bit behind departments like finance or, or marketing that do have that kind of capability and it's almost becoming a bit too speed in the organization where some are really going off at full speed with data and, and guys like HR are struggling behind a little bit and so the skills issue is something that we really need to think about because it's not something that you necessarily um, think you need to know when you're going into teaching and yet it, it may be something that's quite important for the future. Yeah I'm finding that uh that being important for a lot of industries nowadays. But uh, mm. I'd like to know what should be, what data should be studied that would help teachers improve a learning experience? 
I mean, I suppose you're looking for trends and data that provides that sort of holistic overview of what, what the student's doing. And I think that's certainly a, a nice aspect because traditionally you would you might gauge certain things from the classroom interactions and so on as to whether somebody's progressing. But I, I suspect the, the majority of your feedback comes from tests that happen maybe once or twice a year. And even then, you don't necessarily get a particularly good um, insight as to what the, the students really learned or what they haven't. And they may have had a bad day on the day of the test. Their pet might have died, the <laughs> dog may have eaten their homework, or, you know, all of the other things that could go into that person not having a, a good frame of mind when they enter the test room. Whereas with digital tools and, and, and digital learning, you, you're getting that feedback on a pretty much daily basis. And so hopefully that gives you a better understanding of whether that bad performance on a particular day is part of a wider trend or it's an, an outlier that you should perhaps discard as not being all that relevant. So that's the main benefit that I can see is that it provides that sort of context just by the richness of data that you, you're hopefully collecting. That's very true. I, when I was in school, I never tested well. A lot of students actually, they have trouble testing because they get very stressed. They forget, they get nervous and mm. they're put under that pressure. It's hard to be able to think clearly. Whereas if you had a, a software that can track the way you test and learn, but it's not officially labeled as a test, you know, the teacher will be able to look at those trends and say, okay, maybe we shouldn't be testing them this way. Maybe we should teach them a, a, another way, another method, and they'll be able to understand the concept as a whole at the end of it a lot easier than if we just did the standard one-size-fits-all model. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So what is education as a service, and how is this concept and the innovations that are happening in education connected to business models and publishing? Well, I suppose if you think of education traditionally as a, a product-based um, activity, you, you buy a book, you sign up for a course or, or what have you, and sort of flip it around. So rather than buying a book, you're, you're buying access to knowledge or expertise from the author. And I think that opens up a whole raft of possibilities, some of which I, I mentioned previously, but I'll use an example from my, my personal professional life. I contributed to a book recently that, that's due to be published in the start of 2017. And it's around sort of innovation in healthcare. And so it's, it's quite a fast moving field. And pretty much the week after I finalized my bit of it and sent it off to the publishers and so on, there are a couple of things that I wish I'd been able to put in there. But of course, you've got deadlines, you've got word counts and so on that, that necessarily time. restrict you. And so the reader has a bit of information, which hopefully will be interesting. But nevertheless, it may be a little bit out of date because there are newer things that could have been added to it that make that whole uh, bit of content a little bit richer. Um, and so I, I see sort of education as a service as being more responsive to that kind of situation where a purchaser or a customer wouldn't necessarily have to buy a fixed good that may be out of date by the time it's published that they're accessing my expertise on an ongoing basis. Uh, and I think that's a lot more in tune with the kind of world we're living in at the moment and the kind of pace of change that we're experiencing. It does allow somebody to have a more responsive and agile learning experience than perhaps they're having at the moment. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the same with a course. I mean, if you think how long a course takes to put together the curriculum for it, the, the marketing to get students signed up for it, you're running into similar issues there, whereby by the time you're actually teaching your class, there may be things that are a little bit out of date. 
certainly in a technology field that's moving incredibly quickly, it's very difficult to keep up. And so having this more ongoing process, um, I think could be very valuable, especially in a, in a world where you're shifting away from this sort of industrial type style of education, whereby you go to university, you get a, a degree or a master's or a PhD or whatever, and then 25, 30 years of age, and you generally don't go back to university again, because you're in that career, you, you stay in that career for the next 30 years, and then you retire and you're whatever, whereas now you're in a life where you may have two, three, four different careers throughout that life, and therefore you need to be constantly updating your skills. And so I wonder whether universities need to shift their approach a little bit, and rather than saying you sign up for a degree, you finish your degree, and then the only time we, we pester you as an alumni is to try and get money out of you. Um, it's, it's more of a responsive um, relationship, and it's more of a lifetime relationship they have with you to provide those kind of updated skills that you need on an ongoing basis perhaps mm -hmm. who knows yeah well I was looking into that as well because when I was looking into if I should go back to school or not there have been there are a lot of people in my industry that are able to teach and have online courses that they offer um, my question then is how do I know which ones I should be signing up for and giving my money to because it's it's, it can be quite expensive even to take courses online that's not attached to an institution but to an educator. Yeah, yeah. And I was speaking to an um, executive education program um, last week and they, they were quite sort of blatant in, in saying that the value of their course isn't necessarily the, the knowledge that they impart um, upon people because you can get that knowledge quite easily for free online via whatever means their value was more in both the connections that you make with your fellow students mm. and the signaling that you impart employer that says that you've got a qualification from a, a leading institution that therefore means you're very smart, <laughs> uh, which you don't necessarily get if you've self-taught yourself a particular piece of SAP knowledge, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if the employers have a, have a hand in this as well and that, um, there's a slightly better way of understanding whether somebody knows what they're talking about or they don't. Um, and I know in the tech industry, there's increasingly ways where you can show off your coding skills, whether it is on external projects or whether an employer gives you a chance to do something on an internal project before they employ you. There are various ways of actually showing whether you know, some, know how to code or, or you don't. Um, that's not dependent upon you having a piece of paper from a university. And so there are sort of various forces at play, I guess. And I think with people requiring to educate themselves quite so frequently now, I think it is an industry that's ripe for disruption. And I know the guys at Udacity this week have launched, or they're doing a lot more sort of vocational um, MOOCs now. So rather than just having a traditional college course delivered via a MOOC, um, that's quite academic and quite stereotypically university orientated. They're doing more vocational stuff that's almost co-creative with employer. Oh, interesting. And again, that's quite sort of tech heavy at the moment. They, they've done some work with Amazon and Facebook and people of that ilk. But yeah, I do wonder if there isn't an opportunity to do similar things in, in a slightly broader range of topics. So uh, you just have to watch out for that person who they're interacting with. Um, their own credentials itself and not necessarily pay into somebody who basically is they look attractive from the surface but 
at the end of the day, it's all hype on their page of sign up for this course to learn everything there is to know about inbound marketing, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, quite possibly, quite possibly. Okay, so to finish things off, for 2017, I'd like to know what you foresee for digital publishing and the education sector. I think for the education sector as a whole, and I, I touched on it a little bit sort of um, in, in my previous answer, but if you look at the political landscape, whether over in America with, with Donald Trump or um, the Brexit situation here in Britain, there's an awful lot of people that are quite sort of disgruntled and, and angry at globalization and so on. And I think there's, with especially when you think of automation coming into an increasing number of fields, such that I don't think it's a blue collar or white collar thing now, it's a, quite a universal thing that professions may be at risk. Then you're getting into this environment where you've got to be learning on an ongoing basis. And I know from speaking to the Department of Education here in Britain, and I suspect it's it's not dissimilar in America that that whole concept is it's alien to them at the moment. Education for them is something you do up until you're 21 and then you're working. That's It's very delineated. And I can see that really changing over the next year as we, as we get to grips. Requirement to be learning all the time and to be adapting to what's sort of branded as the fourth industrial revolution and this whole world that's changing quite so rapidly and quite so enormously. I think we've got to create an environment where people can adapt a little bit more effectively than they can at the moment. So that's sort of my biggest desire, I guess, for the next year, that politicians uh, get a handle on that a bit better and start providing a bit more support for people to, to retrain. I forget who said it, but um, somebody very wise said that uh, a day spent without learning is a, a day wasted. So um, I, I think that's quite a nice motto to, to have in life. And yeah, if you can learn something new every day, then I, I don't think you'll be doing too badly. I should put that on my desktop uh, wallpaper. <laughs> <laughs> but find out who said it first. <laughs> Will do. Okay, well, that's all the questions we have. Thank you so much for talking with us on the Content Marketing for the Future podcast, AD. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Well, folks, I hope AD's insights provided you with a ton of food for thought. We know we're excited to see the adoption of machine learning technology in education. I mean, what's better than making the learning process painless and perfectly suited for your audience? Don't forget to follow AD on Forbes and on Twitter at AD Gascal. And please share your thoughts with me on Twitter at Atomic underscore Reach. With that, I'd like to say thanks once again for tuning in, taking notes, and following the Content Marketing for the Future podcast. This has been Amanda signing off.